Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. We know we're sparkling ahead. Honey, I thought I'd give you a call. Looking for tomorrow to be sunny in the midst of this snowfall. I let you and the kids down for way too long now. Hoping to turn our life around if I can just figure out how. I'm working on a plan to save our home. Keep us out of the poor house. Pay off those loans. I'm working on a plan. Here we all are, fellas. Appreciate appreciate the time so much. Thank you and cheers from the UK. How's it going? I'm very well. It's really good to see you again, Billy and JD. It's nice to properly meet and connect and get to spend some time chatting to you both in a strange twist of events. The tour that you were just on in the UK, where I saw you both in London and Liverpool, you also played Glasgow. And there was, I don't know if you remember this, there was a group of maybe slightly boisterous Welsh boys that were at that show. Uh, And they're in a band called Punk Rock Factory. And I'm currently on tour with them. And today's a day off. And uh, I said I was going to be chatting to you both. And they said to say hello and, and send their love. But they were at the Glasgow show that you did on that little mini run. And they said they had a great time with you all. And love the night and yeah so they they salute oh, wow. and send their regards well that's excellent please tell them we send ours too it was, it was really fun and that without jumping kind of too straight down the line got me thinking a lot on the the camaraderie and the community that exists within the the live music industry 
because obviously you both know industries whether it's you know movies or media or music involves certain factions that are part of the business part which is necessary but it is what it is and for me the live music industry whether it's the the lighting technicians or the tour managers or the merch sellers or the venue managers or obviously the people that play it and the people most importantly who buy tickets and are there that for me is the life source of this whole thing and the reason that i do it and i'm sure you guys do like writing recording and making music is amazing but nothing beats performing it live right and meeting every everything everybody that comes with that oh yeah for sure yeah we uh you know that we love both of them equally you know the studio and live but uh there's something about performing live that uh you kind of up your game a little bit, you know, and also, I mean, for the people that do like you and are there to see you, you know, it's, it's really great to connect with them. And, you know, we try to be pretty interactive with the crowd, you know, and cause I think you owe it to them, but there's a certain energy that, I mean, right before you come on stage, there's really nothing quite like that. And, you know, it you, you always have nerves uh, and, uh you don't know how it's going to turn out i mean whether it's whether it's a mediocre show or a great show or whatever it is you have the same nerves every time and uh but you know without the audience uh you you really got nothing to feed off of so if you if you are there for them they'll be there for you you know what i mean and uh it's just this great back and forth that you have with a, with an audience, and uh, and we also sound different live. I mean, you know, it's like our records. You know, when you're making a record, you you know you try to make it as pristine, you know, as you possibly can, and you you know you do a, whatever number of takes it, it it is until you get it right or whatever. And live, you got that one shot at it, so well, you put everything into it, you know, for better or for worse, and. Uh, uh, I think we probably have a lot more punk in us live than we do on our records, you know. Well, very quickly, there's a bunch of things immediately I want to just jump in on, and I'm going to try and stay on track as much as I can, but there's so many ideas and thoughts. So the run of shows that you guys just did um, was interesting to me because it was Bubbles from the Trailer Park Boys and his band and you guys. And I've never seen, still to this day, the Trailer Park Boys, but I'm familiar with the shtick, the humor. So I, I kind of knew from that side of the fence what their show was going to entail. And I knew that you guys were a band because we spoke, um, Billy Bob, after the Cavern show about our connection with Rob Fenn. And so I knew that the Bo Boxmasters were a band. But to my ignorance and stupidity, I'd not heard them until the lead up to that tour. And I thought, well, if I'm going to go see the show, I've got to see what it's all about. But I only listened to the first album. And so that first album is very kind of country infused folk kind of like, you know, it, it, it's brilliant and I love it. And I think it's some of the best stuff still that you've done. And I've spent the last few days listening to as much, if not all of it in the lead up to this, but it is that one thing. And then I saw the show and I was like, huh, this is like the Standells, Paul Revere and the Raiders. Again, I said all this to you after that show, when I met you, I was like, it was pure 60s garage rock and roll which for me is punk before punk and i had no idea that it was going to be that until i saw it and then i saw it live and i was like oh my god 
Like this is a raucous rock and roll show. And it was such a <laughs> delightful surprise to me. Um, so I don't even really have a question off the back of that. I just wanted you to know that I observed that within your textures. And I love that about you because reading what little information there is about the band out there, I gather there was a moment in time where you did the first couple of records, did what you did with that, and it was amazing. But then you took like a break, right? And decided rather than being this one trick pony, we're actually going to now go away and learn how to be a band. And then we're going to go out and share that with the world. So I guess the question would be, tell me about that transitory period between evolving from the kind of mod Billy folky country and Western thing into this amazing band that it now is JD over to you. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, we honestly, we never stopped. We, uh, we did those first three records. If you count our Christmas record, which were kind of the first three things, which were, you know, melding hillbilly music with the British invasion and in our way with, you know, Michael Nesmith, and uh other stuff thrown in there but you know we always kind of we we always started with that love of the 60s and so when we weren't visible we were still in the studio we recorded four or five six records that never came out during that period in between um mod billy and then somewhere down the road so there was three or four years there but we were just like hardcore in the studio recording all sorts of things that were based on our love of the sixties. And so kind of when we reemerged, um, it had, you know, the sound had changed and we like to, you know, each record that we do has kind of our focus, like, okay, this is going to be our sixties garage record. This is going to be our, um, late sixties, more psychedelic feeling record everything kind of has its focus of like what is it going to be what is the kind of you you guys are super niche about that even to the point of year you know with the 66 69 thing and i love that so much because it's like 60s is is its own thing but within the 60s at that point in time every six months there's a new genre there's a new sound (laughs) there's a new whole aesthetic around the thing and you're you're very mindful of that aren't you as a as a collective kind of creative entity yeah oh, very sure. so. yeah yeah we see the thing is is we always naturally sounded like what we sound now the first couple of records were done as sort of an experimental thing we started it by you know jd and i were working on one of my solo records in the old studio and we one night we just recorded the song together uh, we were the only two there and uh we liked the sound of it and and we thought well hey you know what let's start listening to some of those things that we loved from the 60s but particularly the british invasion i mean you know i was uh you know around and i actually saw the beatles on the ed sullivan show so i was you know of that age i was think i was eight years old and um so the first official box master song we recorded was a, a cover of yesterday's gone by chad and jeremy and uh we thought hey this has got an interesting song because we didn't even sing or play like that we did it on purpose we thought well what if we sang it like david allen Coe or somebody and <laughs> you know and played music that was 
had a strong hillbilly influence, but you sneak a little bit of the of British invasion in there along with um, uh, sort of the sense of humor of Frank Zappa or somebody, you know. And uh, so uh, it's probably not evident that we're influenced by Zappa, but just the, you know, the humor of it was. And because a lot of those songs were kind of whimsical, you know. Whimsical, uh, but also quite sardonic and sarcastic and critical, but with an optimism about it, which is all Zappa. And again, I got that when I saw the whole package live. I was like, you know, there's a wink there. It's like life's kind of weird. But if you acknowledge that weirdness and you're in on it, that's when the fun begins. Yeah, right. Well, it's, you know, we have a lot of songs. I mean, we're sort of around here and known for this thing that we do, which is to do songs that, on the surface sound like a pop song, like it could be the grassroots or whoever it is. But if you ever really pay attention to the lyrics, it could be about, you know, a serial killer or whatever. I mean, you know, you just don't know. It's uh, so we, we have that sort of juxtaposition of pop sounding music with darker or like you said, sardonic, uh, sarcastic lyrics or things like that. And, you know, we get into social topics, political topics, sometimes like that, uh, those kind of things. But um, we don't do a lot of songs about, you know, a boy and girl at the mall shop or anything like that. There aren't many of those, although we've done them. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, we grew up listening. We love the Kinks and the Who, you know, and without... The Kinks and the Who, there probably wouldn't have been punk. You know, I mean, a lot of people start, you know, they say that punk really started with the, you know, the people like, uh, let's say Iggy Pop or the Ramones or, you know, people like that. But it actually goes further back, you know. And, uh, well, my thing, my thing, Billy Bob, is I'm, I'm 37. So my age of discovering music was the kind of post nirvana years where punk rock as it was introduced to me was bands like green day rancid no effects etc but what i did very early on just because i'm curious and always have been is i was like what came before these guys and then you find the clash uh, and iggy pop and ramones as you say but then if you're still curious you go well what about before that and that's when you land at the sonics and the kingsman and you know and, and all of the garage bands from the u.s those sort of one-hit wonder groups that i mentioned mm-hmm. earlier on but were so magical and also kinks who animals etc for me that that's that whole lint and like the trashman surfing bird you know before it became the family guy bit like i was said like the trashman surf bird was pre-beatles even so imagine mm-hmm. being like a teenage kid in a diner somewhere in america you put in the dime into the jukebox and you get a ba 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 ma 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 ba Free Beatles, that is like satanic, crazy, chaotic music. And even Elvis and Little Richard. And you can go as far back, really, to the birth of guitar music. And that, for me, is where that whole lineage and excitement comes from. And again, I just saw that with you guys. I was like, oh, this, there's obviously that kind of Southern humor and twang and style that's there. And that's necessary. And it's a flavor. But as well as that is the attitude and the energy of punk rock garage punk whatever you want to call it just plug in that guitar turn it all the way up uh, and spit spit some funny character stories over amazing riffs and melodies yeah that's kind of what kind of what we do and and we try to we try to write you know 
clever lyrics that, uh, you know, if you ever read them just on a page, they could be entertaining, you know, even without the song. Because I think a lot of times these days, a lot of people just want to hear what does the song sound like and they dance around and whatever, you know. Uh, but uh, we're hoping that lyrics don't get lost along the way somewhere, you know, and I think they have to a degree. And uh, uh, I mean, you know, I used to listen to like the MC5 when I was growing up, you know, and uh, even played on a festival then when I was a teenager and, you know, this kind of thing. And they had, you know, they were a very political, you know, socio-political group, you know, and yet they were so loud, you don't know what they were the me- saying. The message is lost <laughs> in the cacophony of carnage. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So then that that would cause us all, me and my buddies as teenagers, to to dive in and look at the, what are they saying, you know? And then once you knew it, then when you listen to their records, you know, you were, you were getting the whole package, you know? And, uh, yeah, you know, rock and roll can't be... The best thing that we can do with rock and roll uh, is to keep paying tribute to it because you're not going to change it. You know, I mean, like from 1955 or so to 19 early 1970s or even to 75, those were the years when, you know, rock and roll, which changed to rock around 66, 67 with cream and people like that, you know, um, it, uh, it was i mean that's when it formed we lost the role is what happened billy somewhere along I, the line we lost the role in the rock and the roll and yeah, rock, yes. <laughs> rock evolved but the role went somewhere and i think yes. what what for me is amazing about you guys is you're keeping the role part alive if that we makes sense try. and is the compliment I, that i hope yes. that it is yes absolutely no doubt about it yeah how did you two first connect what what's the musical series of events that bring you two into each other's orbit you want to take that, JD? Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we started um, because Billy's house engineer at, at his house, um, he got a job working for a big sports company, you know, like a normal job with benefits and health insurance and stuff. And so Billy needed somebody. He was like, for- see you later, Billy, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, it's, you know. He had children and you understand what happened in that situation. But for me, it's like I got a I uh I saw a friend of mine who happened to be Billy's music manager at the moment, and she said Billy needed somebody for a couple of weeks to help him finish this solo record called Beautiful Door. So I came over one night um and heard what they had going because they had most of the record recorded. They just needed to uh do a few overdubs and you know get it finished so that it could be mixed and you know i remember coming over and listening to what they did and and you know i was uh very pleased to be coming into a record that was great already all i had to do was you know help push the button a little bit well like billy said we recorded a song one night because nobody else was around he said hey i've seen you playing guitar a little bit would you play on this song And it was a cover of Lost Highway, the old Hank Williams song. And it did. It had a cool sound to it. And, you know, for me, I was just like, hey, yeah, we're doing something neat. And it sounds sounds good. And I haven't played guitar really on anything in years. And 
but Billy, you know, already had the ideas for what we're going to start doing. And, uh, yeah, that was 17 years ago, almost. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, the end of 2006. So, uh, you know, luckily we've had this progression, you know, like we started with experimental stuff and then moved into what do we sound like naturally? And, you know, we've always taken on the sound of, you know, people we were collaborating with, like Mike Butler on the first stuff was a, you know, really great guitar player and played really great country stuff. And Brad Davis is a really, you know, outstanding player. And so he kind of, um, helped inform, you know, the somewhere down the road record. And then basically just me and Billy from there on. And, you know, we just, we love the sixties British invasion stuff, you know, so much as well as the beach boys and Credence and, uh, um, you know, just other, you know, the bands that everybody grows up listening to, but we just, you know, really, kind of focus on what you know certain ones were doing and so that's where we you know each record becomes its own little moment in time where we focus on you know what is what were we what should we be doing if we were a band in 1966 or 69 or whatever era we're we're picking out like what instruments would they be using what recording techniques and things like that what can we do to really try to um make a record that sounds like a band in this era and uh luckily we don't need another recording engineer because that's what i did coming into the band and uh so it's just us like writing songs and uh not just what, not, not just writing songs though jd you guys are churning songs out like <laughs> I've been trying, I say trying because A, you've got a lot of albums, but B, on almost all of your albums is like 20 to 30 songs. There's so <laughs> much, and it's not, there's no filler or like this isn't just, you know, songs for the sake of songs. It's just this ongoing body of work that seems to just come so effortlessly, seamlessly, and organically all the time. So what I would love to try and understand beyond the musical connection that you share, what is the common connective tissues be they musical or personal spiritual whatever they are that you guys gel and bond over that feeds into this ongoing factory of brilliant art because it is a little bit obnoxious guys how much stuff <laughs> you have <laughs> and i love it um and it's because when when it's a band and you say you feed off the different collaborative people that you bring in and that's important but i guess at the core of it is you too as in you pair not the band you two so when you're together in a room beyond your musical shared inspirational touchstones, what are the things that you both go, yeah, this is our common sort of quest here to share and express? Well, I think one thing, uh, we're both, uh, we were both baseball players. <laughs> so we love baseball. We usually have a baseball game on in the studio. Uh, but we also just sort of our outlook on, you know, the state of affairs in the world, you know, uh, it's, uh, uh, we're, we're, we both kind of believe in fairness and we also see the absurdities in life. And uh, 
So I think a sense of humor is one of the first things you need if you're going to be in a band with somebody, and especially if you're going to be locked in a room together all the time recording. You know, you don't want to... The recording studio is no place to have people who are uptight and stiff, you know? And the the road even more so, I would say. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, like the people you're on the bus with, you know, those guys, you know, we've we've got, uh, you know, J.D. and I make the records for the most part. But then on on the road, you know, there's five of us up there and uh, two of the guys have been with us for years. And then we have the new... On the records, I play drums, but we have a live drummer, Nick, who's been with us for, I think, three tours. And um, so we're all, I mean, it's not, it's not that we all see eye to eye, maybe politically, you know, because we've got all, you know, shapes and sizes of that on, on our crew and our band, right? But we do all see... Uh, we're all very passionate about whatever we believe in. And we also all see the absurdity in everything. So I think if you, if you agree on that kind of stuff, then you can get along with just about anybody. And uh, so, you know, you, you try to, one of the worst things a person can say to you when you're, and, and you know, you get this a lot. I, I mean, I've had friends who've gotten it before. So let's just say you're playing in, I don't know, Detroit or wherever. And just so happens that that night, uh, Rockstar X is there, not the band, as you said before. But uh, I just did guy, a cruise with X last year, and they're in one of the greatest they, bands of all oh, they're, time. They're awesome. Yeah, they're X, awesome. X scene is a badass. I spent every night just drinking oh, yeah. gin and tonics with her in the casino on the boat. <laughs> Love her for all time. Love that band for all time. Sorry, Billy. Back to your story. Love those, love those guys. And um, so, but anyway, so Rockstar guy comes backstage because he's there also in Detroit that night. And he's off. And his buddy says, oh, these guys are over here. So they go down. They can't wait to get backstage and let you know that you're just a, you know, a little rat, you know, in the scheme of things. So, and this is, and they think that you don't know. I mean, because you know, I've been doing this since I was 12. So, and I've been worked as a roadie. I've been all over the place touring since I was a teenager. And I've seen it over the years. Sometimes they even do it to each other. I mean, it's Rockstar X and Rockstar Y. So they come back and they go, hey, man, yeah, I checked out your show. Looks like you guys are having fun up there. See the most backhanded compliment of all time. That's the one. Yes. (laughs) And so they say that a lot of times. And the fact of the matter is, is yes, absolutely. If it's, it should be fun. Uh, And I mean, rock and roll is fun. It was, but rock and roll was also invented as a backlash to a lot of things in society, you know? And so, if you're doing this and you've been doing it as long as we have, then you're not just having fun. You're also trying to say something and you're also trying to excite people. And uh, so I, when they say that to, to us these days, I just say, no, actually we weren't having fun. It was miserable. Do you have fun? You know? And so, but I guess what I'm trying to say is, is it should be a combination of all the things 
it should it, it should be fun. Uh, you should take yourself seriously, and you should not take yourself seriously. It's got to be all things, because in order to, you know, write good songs and write things that mean something, and in order to present it to an audience, you have to be serious about it. But at the same time, if you don't have fun, the audience isn't going to have fun. So you have to combine all these things to make a show and to make an album, frankly. And that, to answer your question, is why I think JD and I can do it is because we have fun in the studio, but we're serious about what we're making. You know, uh, you can't just do one or the other. You know, uh, uh, if, if you're only serious about yourself, you end up with one of those tapes out there that everybody listens to, like the Trogs, where they got in the argument over the drum part. <laughs> I love and adore everything that you just said there and it's it's very evident on stage and the other members in the band that i saw play with the shows that you did um at the cavern and in london as well it was on display um there's so much i want to try and get through frank zappa you mentioned earlier billy um am i right in thinking that there is was or continues to be some form of personal connection with that camp beyond just appreciating the records as well oh absolutely yeah I mean, we have so many uh, uh, photographs of Zappa up in the studio. It's ridiculous. Uh, I mean, he's a constant inspiration just because of what he thought about the world and people and, you know, what uh, uh, he was trying to say to people, you know. And uh, oftentimes, people who really speak their minds are the ones who don't sell a lot of records. <laughs> and, uh so, you know, Zappa never, you know, had platinum, you know, albums in the, his in his day, you know. Hits. Uh, and, and hits. Yeah, he didn't he didn't have smash hits, but uh but what he did do uh was he said a lot of things and and made a lot of music that have stuck with the people who understood it and always will. Uh so I think his his uh social and political views and and the you know the genius of his music and his sense of humor um i, I still stick with us and we and we're you know have been uh well one year uh diva his youngest daughter actually went out on tour with us and and uh did wardrobe for us because uh, i was talking to her one day because i was close to the family gail actually gave me frank's couch that he wrote his songs on for my birthday one year this is 20 years ago but um it's in the uh, studio yeah it's in the it's in the studio and uh uh so she said that she'd never been on tour before on the tour bus and i said well frank zappa is your dad you've been on tour so i said okay you're gonna go do wardrobe for us so she went out with us and uh and loved it so it was uh it was a cool thing and i still talk to some of them every now and then but i was really close with gail his widow and uh uh we've jd and i've both gotten to see the studio and be around dweezil when he was working in there and uh so it's a big deal i i met the family uh after uh not long just a year or two after frank passed away uh however i did carry on phone conversations quite a bit with captain Beefheart with don van Vliet, which was also <laughs> quite an experience i mean with someone like that that can 
only be too many stories to try and pick one but i mean so i used to have i can't remember the name of the song but my when when texts were first available as songs you know when you could first buy a song and it was your text tone it was like whoa brave new world my text tone every time it you know buzz with the message would be a squid eating dough in a polyethylene bag as fast and has <laughs> got me bow, 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 and go into the whole thing that guy is the definition of raconteur like just brilliant unique brain um wh- what does being in the orbit of somebody like that <laughs> teach you remind you show you again about the absurdity and the beauty of, of the human condition because he was really out there wasn't he but also right in there yeah, I mean, sometimes he would say things that I, at, on, uh, at first, they didn't make any sense at all. And I thought, well, that's just gibberish, right? I mean, just like when I, you know, would pl- play the, his records to my friends when I was like 14, and they'd be like, what's wrong with you? You know, here, let's put that, you know, Osmond record on again or whatever. And, um, so yeah he could say some of those things and then when you start thinking about it and it's like you know everybody says oh this is genius poetry and then you you look at it again and you go oh wow okay oh okay now you start to pick out what it means you know and it's like okay that is that's very poetic and 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 not easy stuff i mean there's nothing easy about that music. I mean, you know, they were playing different rhythms, each member of the band at once sometimes. And uh, uh, I actually, uh, I, I'm in touch with John French, Drumbo, who was Beefheart's drummer. Uh, he and I are friends. And I've over the years, I've gotten to know Mark Boston, who was Rockhead Morton, the bass player, and uh, as well as uh, Antenna Jimmy Siemens and uh, Jeff Cotton. And... Uh, and Bill Harkle Road, uh, who, you know, Zoothorn Rulo, and because, uh, you know, Beefheart named all of his guys. Uh, but uh, uh, I actually had a Zoom with all of those guys about a year ago, and uh, they're working on this documentary thing about it. And uh, it's, it's so interesting to hear the stories of those days because it wasn't, uh, they, they didn't join a band that was going to be in the top 10 and they knew it not only that they didn't join a band where they could even eat every day (laughs) so it wasn't exactly uh you know they weren't doing it for comfort's sake i'll guarantee you that you know (laughs) uh, but all that the avant-garde always appealed to me and so there is a way and i think we've found a way within the box masters to do something that uh that is very sneakily avant-garde you know on the surface just sounds like rock and roll well i think as well just by the essence because i've got a lot of friends in the touring industry and i've got friends who've toured with the hollywood vampires and johnny depp's operation and Kiefer sutherland with his keanu reeves is now back with his band and like there's a few different actors for me throughout the last 25 30 years who People know them as actors because that's what they got famous for. But way before acting, they were musicians. And the way they truly exist as, as free spirit, creative individuals is in that world, is, is musically. And so I think just by its nature, any band that has an actor in it is kind of against the grain. 
because everybody's willing them to fail, right? They're like, look at this actor guy trying to make music. And you're like, well, no, I was a musician before then. You only just know me as that. And so already this, the kind of the, the, the deck is stacked against you. So yeah. you're only going to do what you want to do anyway, because to try and curry favor in the press or wherever it's coming from is a wasted exercise anyway, right? So it's like, let's just get at it. Well, I mean, the thing is, is you can't, if you're doing something on a lark, you don't do it for your entire life. <laughs> you know, you do it like maybe once. And, uh, you know, let's say, you, you know, you get a big producer and, and uh, you get a, a pop hit and, uh, and it's all fun for you. But, you know, we don't have any hits. Uh, we, we keep I beg going. to differ. I beg to differ. Poor House is a legitimate hit. And very quick, very quickly, sorry, I was thinking this because you, you as a, a band, I think, fulfill the kind of two stereotypical tropes of a band, which is that A, one of your earliest sort of singles is in its quintessence the best song you may ever release. But the other side of that coin is the 69 record that you put out this year is also, I think, the by a country mile best album you've ever done. And so every band will tell you their newest is the best, but yours, I think, actually is, having just listened to all of it in such a short space of time. But to go way back to day one, Poor House is as perfect a song as this band will ever release. Um, so Poor House, just very quickly, because I'm so intrigued to know about the construction of that. Where does it begin? And, and are you fond of it? And, and does it hold up in your mind to the perhaps more realized versions of the band that you've achieved in the years that followed um jd what's your take on poor house which is a hit <laughs> yeah i'm not gonna disagree with you um you know because i know that kind of anywhere we go people still ask for us to play that song you know and it's it's it isn't one we've played in a long time but you know, every once in a while we listen back to that early stuff that we did and we go, you know what? We were pretty damn good, you know, on that, that early stuff, but it wasn't a, a lane that we could keep going down and still sound fresh. You know, we, we, we did that and then it's like, okay, let's move on to the next thing we want to do. Um, but I love, I love that early stuff. And yeah, that was, that's always a song that uh, I look back on and with fondness and uh, yeah, if it wasn't so specifically like if it didn't have such a specific sound, you know, we might be able to re, you know, modernize that song a little bit, you know, for a, for a different sound. But it, I think it's that such a specific style and type of song that it's hard for us to do. And I think we just kind of have to live with that being that and being that time. And uh, the, ly the lyrical content constrains it to that sonic avenue, doesn't it? Yeah. Because you, you could try and rearrange it, but by its essence, it's and lyrically, Billy, like how much of that, where are those reference points coming from? Cause it's so perfect. It's such a perfect character study of that particular version of life, which you know, and obviously understand and you pay such beautiful tribute to it with that song well it's you know as as jd was saying that was a different sound we were in fact on those 
early records and on Poor House, uh, we were playing characters. Within music, we were playing characters because we don't sound like that. So we purposely, you know, it, it doesn't take much for me to reach back into my roots and have a, a, a hillbilly accent, you know what I mean? And so we, you know, coming from, J.D. and I both, our, our ancestors come from where you do. And, uh, you know, my, my folks were from Lancashire and Yorkshire and all these kind of places, you know. And so if you think about it, rock and roll, a lot of times I say rock and roll comes from the blues. But you can say that and, and you would be right. But sometimes they don't take into consideration all the other things that are added to the blues that actually created the sound of rock and roll. You know, you know, I think blues is the, or that's the root of a lot of things. But if you take, you know, Irish or Scottish or English folk music and, you know, stuff like that, uh, it's uh, that was added into a lot of rock and roll. I mean, you can't really say yes or Jethro Tull, you know, or some or somebody like that uh, uh, came from muddy waters. I mean, necessarily. And I'm not saying that it's not in there, but uh, so poorhouse really is a is a thing that uh, it's a type of thing and a subject matter that really came from where I grew up in the South in Arkansas. And my grandmother, instead of saying, you know, throw you in jail for debt, you know, it it was the poorhouse. That's what they called it. And when it got time for you know. Uh, all everything to be paid, you know, and you didn't have the money, you'd say, well, they're going to throw me in the poorhouse. And it was just something I was thinking about one day. She also called uh, mental institutions the nervous hospital because she <laughs> she was trying to be nice, you know. And uh, so I grew up in, in a world that a lot of people might say was in a white trash culture. You know, it's a terrible thing, I guess, to say, you know, but I guess if I say it myself, it's okay, <laughs> because that's what some people would have called the way I grew up, although my family was pretty, uh, in, in our area, my, they were the most literate people in my area. My grandmother was a writer and a teacher, and my father was a teacher, you know, and all this kind of thing. So I grew up with, you know, writing sort of in the blood because of, of them and the stories they tell in the South. So Poorhouse is the kind of song where you can actually tell a story that has a beginning, middle, and an end, and but still just sound like a three-and-a-half-minute song, you know, which is which it's great. I mean, uh, songwriting sometimes is not easy because you have a short amount of time to tell a story in. You know, it's not like writing a screenplay or a book or something where you can develop things. You've got to every line has to count. Whereas in a movie, every now and then, if somebody doesn't just say, hey, pass the salt and pepper, then it's getting too precious with, its, with itself. In a song, you kind of have to do that. And so it's, it's really just about a, you know, a guy who's been no good to his family <laughs> and, uh, you know, and decides to, uh, he's going to straighten up. But, he, but the reason, the way he's going to straighten up is by doing another stupid thing. 
<laughs> so it's like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Reno and win us some money and then she'll like me and I'll take care of you and the kids. And don't you worry, I'm on my way, honey. I'm going to straighten up now. So I'm going to go to Reno and gamble what little I've got left. And and even if you think it's bad, at least I'm not back on the booze, right? So it's like, even, yeah, exactly. though, even though I'm a loser, I'm still a winner in my eyes. And, Absolutely. That, and that's that beautiful kind of like denial, like a lovable loser, right? That's just so, yes. I don't know, just charismatic in his failures, uh, which right. is so human because <laughs> we all are, you know, that's the thing is like, we're all perfectly imperfect. And to yes. acknowledge, acknowledge and celebrate that is so wonderful. 
the um, the mod billy, we would have to go to a studio and record. And so we would go for three or four days, record three or four songs, maybe, you know, five if we got lucky and recorded, you know, just like furious people. But we were restrained by a clock. Like we had this amount of time. We have to get this much done, you know, and we have to bring all our stuff in, set it up, tear it down at the end, you know, and just get done what we can. So 69, we have our own studio where everything's set up and there's no clock and we can record whenever we want, whenever we have time, whether that's every day for a week or two weeks straight or, you know, a couple of nights a week here and there. So everything's set up and we can just take our time on songs. And so it was kind of the first record that we've been able to just it takes us three days to do a song great if it takes us you know a week to uh you know figure it all out and get it recorded that's fine too or if we want to just record a piece on this one and then jump to another song we have that ability now that we we didn't have so we're able to really focus and like record everything we wanted to and then tear the songs apart and then put them back together again and so that you you can't underestimate that having the time and ability to really dive into the songs that you can make them better you know it's like you can always just like kind of like okay maybe that sounds not right let's try a different sound there and having that ability um i think really made it better and i'll agree i think 69 is one of our best records and it's uh i'm really happy with uh everything we were able to do there it's it's really a it's got a lot of layers you know some of the songs have you know a ton of parts on them and they are it's like there's the george um george harrison parts and then you know there there's i could uh, definitely hear those and and love those when yeah. i heard that i was like yeah i i i hear where they're exactly drawing yeah, from put, and going put some to clean it. little clean slide stuff in there and it's like okay that's george harrison you know and you know of course we we love george harrison and the traveling wilburys and uh all that stuff jeff lynn it's uh you know a lot of stuff it's like we really get to take elements from all those things that we like and it's like okay let's have the jeff lynn acoustic guitars and george harrison slide and then um have some beach boy harmonies and things like that it's like you take all the things you love and you just do that to your songs and uh i mean you can't beat it i mean it's really we're so lucky that we have all those people to draw from it's like oh let's do this uh other uh i'm trying to think of somebody else we've used recently like as an inspiration um but anyway, you, you take all that stuff and, and you just, you know, throw it on your own song. It's like, oh, we've got this little bit here from that and that from that. And it's like, and you meld them all together and it sounds like us. So it's well, it's like everything from the beginning to the end here. It's It always sounds like us, but it's like it can be a different thing. It can be a hardcore garage rock song or it can be a, a slow, um, you know, 50s tragedy ballad. You know, it's still... Sounds like the box masters, thankfully. And the other thing about it is, is we don't always know it in advance either. I mean, sometimes we do. 
but there are other times when we'll record a song and realize after the fact that oh that's got a vibe of this or that or the other you know what i mean and uh and i think it's one of the most important things i mean your your influences are always going to sneak into your work i mean that's just going to happen and then sometimes as jd said you purposely do that but uh, i think it's one of the most important things for any artist in any medium to to know as uh history you know if if you know your history uh it's going to make you a better artist. I mean, you can, you always have to be a fan. Once you stop being a fan, I think you I think your sort of dreams die and your you you kind of die inside. Period. You know, I just don't think. Uh, uh, although when we're making a record, we usually don't listen to anything else, certainly anything current, because we don't want to be influenced by it. But uh, but the things that we are influenced by, you know, they they always creep in. But you know we. Basically, we're guys who are, uh, you know, we're not spring chickens, you know, but uh, we still think like we're 19 and we're a band that still rehearses in the garage and makes records in the, what sort of our garage. And uh, uh, we're still trying to make it. If you look at it that way, if you, it, because the bar was set pretty high for us. The bar was set by the Beatles and the Stones and the Animals and the Kinks and Traffic and Cream and Deep Purple and Elvis Presley and everybody, you know. I mean, that's a high bar. It's, so you grow up as a kid wanting to be something you know you'll never be. And so that keeps you hungry and it keeps you trying all the time because, you know, you, like I said, we, we're still trying to, make it whatever that means <laughs> you know we're still trying to gain more fans and try to sell more records to people and you know we have you're talking about 69 i i agree that, that i think that's probably our most solid record yet but we've done a couple since then and a concept record which is we have so many records piled up now that we know our label is not going to put them all out so we have this concept record that's in two volumes. I mean, this really goes back to like the early 70s, you know, and uh, we're probably going to put that record out just on the website for the fans and then sell it, you know, on, on tour and stuff because, you know, the, the label's not going to put a, our next record out until next fall. So uh, we're trying to figure out ways to keep putting music out there. Uh, you know, we don't want to gathering dust so um we, we work really hard and we love our fans and we love making records and we love playing live and that's the bottom line and when you when you think like that you every time you make a record you act like it's your first one you know and just keep thinking that way and keep thinking that god we gotta you know maybe someday maybe someday people will recognize us you know <laughs> well, you both mentioned something there that I had Billy Corgan on the show recently, and he said exactly the same thing. He said when he started out, his heroes were already there. And once he realized the Smashing Pumpkins was never going to be as good as Cheap Trick or Black Sabbath, they accepted that. And they were like, we'll just be our own version of that. And in that process, they become the Smashing Pumpkins. That's where the magic happens. You guys have obviously, I mean, Willie Nelson, I was reading, you toured with early on. When you get to kind of hang out and, you know, converse and hopefully connect with people like Willie Nelson and 
you know, Captain Beefheart, Don Van Vliet, people like this, because they did lay the template, who were their inspirations? Like, were they, because, I mean, you go as far back as the beginning of it, but then before the beginning, where do you think those cats, like the Bob Dylans, obviously even Bob Dylan had Woody Guthrie, but then like Woody Guthrie's not doing like a Rolling Stone. It's like there's these architects of this thing, you know, Pete Townsend and, and, and the Beatles. And obviously, again, they had their influences, but what they did was so unique and original. But then maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just their version of their influences. I think so, in a lot of ways. I think it is their version, because if you take the Beatles and you see them shake their heads and go, woo, well, then watch Little Richard. <laughs> I mean, that's where that came from, you know? Uh, so when the Beatles would try to be Buddy Holly or Chuck Berry or Jerry Lee Lewis or Elvis, whoever it was, no matter how hard they tried, they still came out sounding like four guys from Liverpool who were doing their version of what that was. Because, you know, that's how the British invasion happened is they listened to the records from over here and and played those in their clubs and, you know, dance halls and stuff like that. But when they played them, they sounded like that. For the Beatles, that worked out really well. <laughs> and then, so the bands over there in Liverpool and London and stuff, they send that back over here and it and it thrilled us because that was like a way that everybody could hear those records it was like okay it made it palatable to different age groups and types of people and everything so it was a very fortuitous thing for music in general when, when the british invasion happened because there were records that weren't that were a little buried sometimes because of them they brought them out to the forefront. But um, yeah, I think Bob Dylan, I mean, he also had, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy Rogers, the singing brakeman. He had, you know, there, there, there are people like that. And uh, I mean, so if you go way back, you had the blues guys and you had, uh, uh, you know, Billy Holiday and, and uh, uh, like you said, Woody Guthrie and, you know, all these people. And, you know, the, British bands had Lonnie Donegan, you know, the skiffle music and all this kind Rock of thing. Rock and the Lion is Lion. Exactly. Which was kind of, you know, Lonnie Donegan, Donegan was kind of the, you know, Woody Guthrie over there. You know what I mean? So uh, I think we've all had influences, but I think you have something inside you you want to say. And you're not quite sure who you are or how to say it. And then when you start trying to emulate your idols then all of a sudden you find yourself saying what you wanted to say i guess just because it gave you the inspiration to even try and it's like well what do you got through saying this and it's like oh but wait a minute you know marcia left me <laughs> or whatever you know and the next thing you know you're right uh you know positively fourth street or whatever it is you know uh so i think most people already have it in them they just need the the space to to work it out and and as you listen to people you start trying to do that and through trying to do that you discover your own thing you know and start saying what you want to say and uh i mean it's like if you think about it if you take uh uh 
people have, I think, the wrong definition of what a good songwriter or song, uh, musician or uh, singer or whatever, what that is. If you put Johnny Cash and Chris Christopherson and John Prine and uh, Bob Dylan and all these guys, if they lined up on the sidewalk to do American Idol, they had the police arrest them. They get them off the sidewalk immediately, you know. And these are four, four or five of, of you know legendary people, you know that uh, we, we wouldn't be who we are without those people. And and uh, so I think sometimes. These days, I believe, and I'll be, you know, the old guy for a minute. I think we're looking at the surface a little too much now. We're not looking underneath as much to find gems. You know, I think uh, uh, what's a good songwriter in Nashville? One that has a hit. That, that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the quality of the song. It has more to do with, okay, these five songs were hits. Let's write another one like that that sounds like it. I don't know if you've heard this or seen it. There's a thing you can get on YouTube, which uh, we'll, we'll just send it to you and, and watch it. It's six songs written in Nashville. Uh, and I'm not sure who all the artists are. And, you know, God bless them. I'm, you know, wonderful people, I'm sure. But it's six songs of current sort of country stuff and, and Nashville stuff. And they're play he plays them this guy mashed them up and so it'll and you can watch the pro tools you know when it switches you know to each person's couple of lines so this song has a couple of four four lines maybe and then this one has some this one it's the same song it's exactly the same song the melody the tempo everything about it it's the same song at the end he plays all six at once and it sounds like one song. And so is that popular? Absolutely. Are you growing as an artist? Absolutely not. And, you know, <laughs> and that's the thing that Zappa said, uh, one of his quotes, and he had many great ones, was, uh, without deviation from the norm, progress is not possible, which is pretty pretty good i think timelessly true and so on point I, i'm going to send you guys something as well i want to give a shout out to this person here there's a, a uk folk singer songwriter very much in the tradition of, of the john fryans and the people you mentioned and i think as anglophiles you two would get such a kick out of his storytelling because it is so british but it's fed through the filter and the the influence of american country and folk music and his observations and, and the kind of subject matter is so quintessentially English. Again, going back to the Beatles, it's like we've heard Motown and we've heard Chuck Berry, but we're going to give our English take on it. And Beans on Toast, uh, talk about an artist's name. You can't even get more British than that. But yeah, That's I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to send you guys a link to his stuff. I think you'd really dig it. Um, I'm just checking the time. I don't want to keep you too much longer. So as we approach the end of what has been a beautiful and, and, and thoroughly uh, enlightening and, and enjoyable conversation for me, at least. I don't want to speak for you two. Before I let you go, Christmas. We're very early in the year, and I listened to both the Christmas records that you guys have done today whilst walking around London, and there's something for me magical and melancholy about Christmas. It exists in these two contradictory but kind of weirdly cohesive 
constant states um, and we all have our own emotional ties and and things that we associate with that time of year and the music obviously is a a soundtrack to that emotion and moment and you guys nail it with with the aesthetic that you have as a band it lends itself so wonderfully to christmas songs um in particular is it my dream of christmas is is that the the song title that is like as bittersweet and wonderful as any Christmas song I've ever heard. It's so great and so magical and melancholy, as I said. And I'd just love to kind of get both of your personal thoughts on Christmas as a holiday first, and then kind of like when you get together to write and try and capture what that season means, um, how you go about doing it. Because, yeah, I just really love specifically the more recent, the second one. Um, that's like an amazing Christmas album. Really, really is. Well, yeah, that, that Christmas album, the new one, uh, that's one of my favorite records that we've ever done. And uh, JD encouraged that record. Uh, he said, we got to make another Christmas record. And because the first one was in that old style, we wanted to do one like we really sound. And he really wanted to do one. And at first I was kind of, I was not lukewarm on it, but I was like so into what we were doing at the time. I didn't want, want to know if I wanted to go off and do a Christmas record. Once we started, I could get enough. And uh, one of the differences about our Christmas record is there's only a couple of covers on there because normally Christmas uh, records by artists, they just do jingle bells and let it snow and all that stuff. And so we have a a Bobby V song on there and the Paul McCartney song on there um, uh, that sort of bookend it, but everything in the middle is stuff we wrote. And uh, so they're really songs that are, you know, sometimes humorous and sometimes sad and sometimes just plain dark, but they, but it's about the actual experience of Christmas uh, rather than, I mean, some of those songs were just memories from my childhood because they grew up really poor. So it was like, I remember uh, my dreams of Christmas kind of right out of my own book. And, uh, uh, and then, you know, like I said, some of them are really, you know, a couple of them are just fun and funny. But there's even in those, there's a sort of dark humor in them uh, because Christmas is one of those times. I love Christmas personally. I know I have friends who hate it, absolutely can't stand it. And all they do is, yammer on about how it's been so commercialized and it's just a way to make money and maybe that's true but what we remember always is what went on early on in our lives you know that's the what we hold on to so in a household that could have could be abusive sometimes and very dark christmas was always had a magic to it and so basically all we did is we combined the magic of christmas through a kid's eyes and combined it with, you know, Uncle Daryl, who was a, a derelict who he hated to see coming, you know. So uh, that's really what it uh, what it was all about. And you got to have a few Tom Waitsian characters in there as well right. to keep it interesting. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's just actually Billy's family. So you know, it's <laughs> there was from the stories I've heard. There's always those characters, and yeah, it's he's he's drawn on those characters since we've started the band and uh yeah it was my idea to do this christmas record and it was purely for commercial reasons because you can sell a, com a christmas record every year 
And, uh, you know, because even if they don't play us, I mean, some of the Americana stations might play some of our songs and they'll, you know, break out one for, for every year. So it's like, it's just nice to have something, like if somebody's looking for something different, they can come find us. And, uh, you know, I've I've always loved, because we redid three of the songs from that first Christmas record on this new one. And it's like, I've always loved those songs. And so it was just like, well, let's let's play them differently. Let's do the fast one slow and the slow ones fast and kind of change them so that they're completely different from what they were the first time. And it was just a lot of fun. And then we've, you know, it's like, once I give Billy an assignment for like, hey, let's write something for, let's write Christmas songs or let's write songs for something you know, he gets in that mindset and he just is off and running. And then it's, you know, me trying to catch up. So, you know, once, once we have the idea and I can get Billy to buy into it, it's real easy for us to just get in that mode and crank out the songs and, you know, actually have a really good time making that record. And and we did, we had a blast and we had, you know, we had fun taking the pictures because, you know, we took the pictures ourselves and we, uh, you know, made the artwork ourselves and just, it's like, let's rip off a Beach Boys cover. It's like, you know, let's, uh, let's make um, ours because, you know, it's like, for us living in Southern California, as much as we can rip off from the Beach Boys, I, you know, we will just, it's too easy and we love them. You know, it's like, we want to, you know, pay tribute to them in in a lot of ways because for a lot of reasons i'll say the beach boys are the reason i live in california you know it's it's uh they were the first band that was my heroes this i wanted to be it's like in sixth grade when we had a talent night i got up there and lip-synced california girls you know it's like i'm wearing a, a fake dodgers hat that my mom you know put a piece of paper to make an LA on a blue hat. You know, it's, uh, it's like, I, I kind of always, even if I didn't know it, it's like, I want to be there because that's where the beach boys are. And that's where they make rock and roll. And it's, even though I didn't know that's what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be. It's like, when I had the chance, it was like, bam, off like a shot. And it's like, um, you know, everything that's, good in my life has happened because of moving to california and i think our band pays tribute to that as well well and also we you know when you live out here or if you if you choose to move out here a lot of people choose uh that because they have this idea of of la and hawaii and places like that you know palm trees and the girls on the beach and all this kind of stuff and but when you get to a season like christmas california is so not like christmas and so we also found the the humorous irony in that and that's why we called the record christmas in california because you also, could see also people... a great song uh, oh thanks. <laughs> well that, that's probably the most beach boyish one on on there sort of a cross between a hawaiian song and a beach boy song and uh the the words to that we get a kick out of them because it's you know uh it's just uh uses you know beach and uh, california sort of 
references using different things to make your Christmas, you know, sand and seashells and, and that kind of thing. So uh, when we made the cover, as JD said, we, we did it our, ourselves. I, I don't even know what this is. It's all right. It's <laughs> got our own advertisement section within the podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to almost beat my phone up. But anyway, <laughs> so uh, I, I actually called JD one day. I said, what we got to do is we're going to make a Christmas in California album cover. And then and we did, you know, make it look like one of those 60s covers. But I said, the perfect thing is, is most, most people think all of L.A. and Southern California is like Malibu. And most of it's not. And I said, what we really need is just a house like in, you know, Bellflower, where our spiritual home is. And or just any other town in, in Southern California. I said, if we if we just had a tiny backyard with a chain link fence and one of those uh, concrete block walls. And he goes, dude, you've seen my backyard. And I go, oh, yeah, right. So that's J.D.'s backyard because he has a tiny backyard with a uh, concrete block wall and uh, a chain link fence. So that's where we took those pictures. And J.D. had this tiny avocado tree. And, you know, that's what California is known for avocados. If you eat anything, if, if you get the California pancakes, they have avocado on them. So anyway, uh, my wife bought these ceramic uh, avocados. And, and they're kind of heavy. So we put them on J.D.'s avocado tree. And I guess they killed it. I mean, it would barely stand up. I think we had to tie it to the fence or something but so that's that's where the cover idea came from was like let's show how pathetic christmas in california can actually be it's not all you know uh footlights and all that kind of thing um and uh it's definitely not nantucket it's funny though because all of those things you both just said is exactly what christmas is about it's like the personal associations that you have it's expectations that maybe don't meet. It's making the most of what you've got. It's, you know, all of these things that is like Christmas for me is a really weird microcosm of the entire human experience. Like if you're a family guy, you never feel more happy or full of love than at Christmas. If you're a single bachelor dude, you never feel more single than at Christmas. Like it's, and that's why it can be both the best and the worst times is like, it's such an intense magnification of what it means to be alive in such a short space of time so you can either as i said feel like the absolute king of the world or like the biggest sack of shit on god's green earth but if you're willing to embrace both or either side you can have fun with it still have some nice food good company good music and and yeah you guys you tapped into the magic of christmas and as i said right now as we talk it's not even november yet but i spent all day walking around london as the seasons change the nights get darker the lights are starting to go up, the pub lights are getting dimmer. And it was the perfect soundtrack to my walk around today. And I was like, yeah, nice. Chris, Christmas in London in October. Not so bad. <laughs> awesome. Man, I loved London. I loved it. I mean, we didn't get to spend much time in Liverpool because we, we were in London. Um, when they initially booked the tour, we weren't supposed to play London. We were supposed to go straight from Amsterdam to Liverpool and have three days of you know, they were shooting the movie and they were going to get stuff ready for the show. But instead we were like, well, why can't we go to London and play? And so our agent got us a show there. So it meant that Liverpool was just one day and we got there 
we had a an amazing bus with a bus driver who was super nice, except when we got to some place we had to be. So if it was like seven o'clock in the morning, he was like, wakey, wakey, get off the bus, you know? So uh, we ride. yeah. So that day, I think we got to the hotel at, you know, nine o'clock in the morning and we had to be somewhere at 10 o'clock because they wanted us to be in a scene for the movie. And so it was a super long day. And as someone who had never been to the cavern before, I didn't realize that, you know, you go down in there and you just keep going down and down and down. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like, once you're down there, it's like, there's no oxygen, you know, you're just kind of in a, you're in a, in a cavern. And that was one long day. And it's like, it was hard to get out. So, and it was raining all day. And so it's like, we stayed all day down there in that cave. and didn't play late yeah it was and we played really late it was like a super long exhausting day and uh so we didn't really get to enjoy liverpool it was uh you know being stuck in a hole but uh when we were in london we had a couple of days to hang out and god it was fun and i was really disappointed i'd never been there before and so it's like i'm i'm ready to get back well, I, I have a brilliant idea. I'm not going to say it in this podcast. I'll email it to you, JD. But I have a, gen- <laughs> I have a genius idea of a kind of a themed perform- performative touring show, which I'm just going to present to you at a later date, and you can let me know your thoughts. Uh, and I was so pleased. So I was only meant to see the London show. I came to see you guys. I had to leave early because I was DJing across town, so I only caught like the first few songs of you guys. My intention was never to go to Liverpool, but my friend Ed was going up because he books the Bubbles band. And I was like, you know what? Why would I not go to see this weird package, you know, so crazy it just might work, Bill, at the cavern? And I know Sean Ryman who, who booked the shows and, you know, he said that you guys just love the Beatles. So I was like, I want to go see those guys in the place where they're kind of drawing from, you know, like it'd be like going with a Manchester band to CBGBs or something. And, getting the, the fruit all the way back to the root. And I had such a great time watching you play both nights, specifically the cavern night, because I saw the whole set and, and got to have a cigarette with Billy in a chat after the show. And I was just like, I get it. I totally get it. And it must be such a hard, I don't know whether hard's the right word, but it must be a, an annoying element of what you both do is to always have it labeled as like a, maybe an actor's band, right? Because you're never going to escape that. But I saw what you do that night, especially in Liverpool. And I was like, this is rock and roll in its purest form. And I'm so stoked for you guys. And I'm so pleased and excited for everything, you know, you seem to constantly have cooking up. And um, long may it continue. And and another Christmas album would not go amiss either. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks. Thank you. Appreciate that. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your music. And um, yeah, if I'm over your side as well, I'd love to look you up and and go see a show over there and you could show me your side of the pond and, and what's cooking over there. And anytime you're back in the UK, uh, I'll be there. The <laughs> moment the show's announced, I'll bring my camera down, take some photos and yeah. Um, thanks again for the time Thank and the, the connection and the conversation. It's been wonderful. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. We thanks appreciate so much, it. Man. Appreciate it. Cheers, fellas. Keep rocking in the free world. All right, man. <laughs> That's Larry Smith.
It started in October, about the same time as last year. Daddy quit another job and went back to drinking beer. Halloween came and went, I was a laughing stock at school. I guess a flannel shirt and holy jeans are the costume of a fool. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.